Illuminate? Good to see you all. Happy New Year again. Uh, like Pastor Todd said, please be in prayer for the 150 plus students and even more staff that are in Williams right now. They're going to be coming back this afternoon. I've already heard some amazing stories of their time together. There's just something about getting away from your own environment, your day-to-day environment, and the voice of God gets much, much louder. And that's, by the way, also, guys, another reason why you should be at the men's retreat. Um, Like Todd said, sometimes as men, we need a little extra nudge or push to connect uh, with each other. And additionally, since I tore my ACL, the three-on-three championship is up for grabs, so. (laughs) If you are new or newer, we have this thing called First Light, and I want to invite you to it. It's just for you. It takes place after this service. We give you lunch. It's only about a half an hour or so. You get to hear about the history of the church and where God is leading us into the future. You don't need to sign up for that. Just show up, and that'll be in the high school room again right after this service. So here's where we're at, guys. Last week, we rolled out a new series titled Jesus in His Own Words. The idea behind this is that It seems like everybody has their thoughts and opinions about who Jesus is, but don't you think it's best to let Jesus speak for himself? A couple years ago, a buddy bought a shirt for me. It was a quote. It said, I I never said that, Jesus. And I think that's kind of true, right? It's like Jesus is, he he listened to some of these sermons or listened to hear people talk about it. He's like, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. You know, it's certainly nothing that I said. Let's let Jesus speak for himself. And when we do, it's quite remarkable. This morning, we're going to hear him talk about influence. Now, I think it was Jim Rohn who famously said several years ago that you are a compilation of the five people you spend the most time with. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. I think that was mostly true 20 years ago, times have changed. We we live in the age of social media. We have these people that we literally call what? Huh? Influencers. Isn't that interesting? People who have an effect on others, their character, their beliefs, their worldviews, the vast majority of these people that they're influencing, they've never even met, nor will they ever. And yet, we really are the company we keep. Two researchers, Christicus and Fowler, sought to understand just how impressionable we are by those around us. It was interesting what they discovered. For example, if you have a friend who smokes you are 61 times more likely to smoke yourself. If you have a friend whose friend smokes, you are 21 more times likely to smoke. It turns out we really are the company we keep. We are influenced by someone. Every single person in this room, we have some voice or voices that we're listening to that shape uh, who we are. And so even more recently, this idea of friend auditing has become popular because people are realizing, I'm not sure that, uh, that I like where I'm at in life and, and the voices that surround me, I kind of need to evaluate. I need to audit them to figure out if they're really, you know, like giving me life or robbing me of life. And so Jesus comes on the scene 
And he says, I'm going to show you another way. I'm going to speak to you truth. And I'm going to give you life. Actually, the life that you've always wanted. Will you allow me to influence you? Who's influencing you? Who are the voices, the people that are shaping you the most? Now, what's particularly interesting is that um, we are so susceptible to this that it actually forms some complications in uh, the culture and the society in which we live. For example, I heard a couple weeks ago a very famous philosopher say that in his opinion, one of the biggest threats to society is what he calls the narcissistic virtue signaler. The narcissistic virtue signaler. So he goes on to give an, an explanation of what this is. He says, this is the person who adopts opinions and postures solely to garner praise and sympathy, or whose good deeds are tainted by their need for everyone to see just how good they are. You know what this is, essentially? This is a search for identity. And because so many people in our time just cannot figure out who they are, that's the question people are asking. It's like, who am I? Especially the younger generations. They're asking, who am I? Some are asking, what am I? Now, as I thought about uh, this philosopher's words, I think he might be right. I would add to this, though, that if you can combine narcissistic virtue signaling with victimhood, then you have the golden ticket in terms of what it means to have a loud voice, a voice of influence on others today. Maybe you've heard the word intersectionality. This is essentially what this means. The more you've been victimized, the louder your moral voice. Make sense? The more you've been, so, more you've been victimized, victimized, the louder your moral voice. Now, I'm not suggesting that people aren't legitimate victims. In some ways, we've all been victims at different times, and there are reasonable voices to speak into this. But what I'm talking about are, are those who, for no other reason, are attempting to forge a sense of who they are by taking advantage of, of these things, this narcissistic virtue signaling alongside victimhood. And these voices carry great weight and have become very, very influential. And we have to stop and ask, is this the best influence? Uh, I would argue no, because at the heart of it is, is a sense of, of uh, righteousness that is actually self-righteous. So when Jesus arrives, he starts calling people to himself. And essentially what he's saying is, you've got all kinds of influences around you. But none of them are giving you the life that you really want to have. Allow me to enter into that space. And he does this in, in the most unusual way. And it's a surprise even to the people that he speaks to. I'll, I'll show you what I... What I mean, Matthew chapter four, this is how Jesus does it, beginning with verse 18. So while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus sees two brothers, and then we get their names. Simon, he's also called Peter, and Andrew, his brothers, two guys are brothers. They're casting a net into the sea, why? Because they were fishermen. And Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So this is actually a pretty clever play on words. They're used to fishing for fish. Jesus says, you follow me, and you're going to apply your trade, but you're not going to be drawing in fish. You're going to be drawing in people. 
Immediately, it's an important word. We'll get back to that in a second. They left their nets and they followed Jesus. And so going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. They're, they're fixing their nets, and so Jesus called to them. Look at verse 22. Immediately, they left the boat, and they left dad, and they left their home. They leave it all behind, and they follow Jesus. So let's break this down a little bit. It's really interesting. When Jesus sets out to recruit his followers, he does so in the most unexpected ways. Uh, he basically chooses people that others would look at and say, totally unqualified. Simple fishermen. It reminds me of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were born in the castle, right, behind palace gates. No, not many of you were of noble birth. Yeah, I, I love this because this is really encouraging to all of us. It's not like Jesus is looking for the best and the brightest. And here's, here's how it works with Jesus. Um, it's not your qualification that makes you worthy. It's your calling. It's the simple fact that Jesus says, come follow me. And, and it's, uh, I, I've heard so many people say, it's like, I, I, don't, I just don't feel qualified. Like, I haven't been to seminary. You know, it's like, I haven't read my Bible that much. And I just, I'm just not qualified, right? Or if you knew the stuff that I was involved in, man, if you, if you only knew the junk and the darkness that I've been in, Totally, totally unqualified to follow Jesus. And it's kind of like the text is like, yeah, that's the point. These are the people whom Jesus chooses. Uh, John chapter 15, he makes it clear to him. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I turned your life around because I'm, we're talking about giving new meaning and purpose to your life. That you should go and bear fruit. If someone would ask me, what does it mean to bear fruit? I would simply tell them to bear fruit is essentially pattern your life off the life of Jesus. And when you adopt the mentality in the heart of Jesus, you become a tremendous influence for good on, on those around you. That's the fruit. Now, I want you to notice something really interesting here. When Jesus called them, this is why I emphasize the word twice, it's mentioned, immediately they dropped their nets. Immediately. What, what's going on here? Well, this is the chance for these guys to leave behind all of the things that the world had to offer. Being a fisherman was really hard, and it wasn't very lucrative. It, and here's why. The Romans levied heavy taxes, always, always taxing. There was a tax on every fish that you took out of the water. Additionally, they would charge you to fish in the water. So on the Sea of Galilee, if you wanted to make money fishing, you had to count the number of fish, you had to pay taxes on every single one of them, and then you had to pay just to put your hook in the water in the first place. It was a really difficult life. These guys needed an alternative to this oppressive sort of worldly system that they lived in. But there's more. This actually was the opportunity to live a life of significance. Every Jewish father had a dream that his son would be called by a rabbi. And when Jesus appears, instantly he takes on the form of a rabbi. People recognize, ooh, this guy's a rabbi. They can just see it. When he begins to speak, immediately they know this guy's a high-class teacher. And so when he approaches these two simple fishermen, two more brothers later, and he says, hey, you guys, follow me. They're going to be like, we're leaving it all behind. This is our chance to be somebody. See, they had approached the age where they'd been looked over. Right? Uh, the, the hopes and dreams that their dads had for these boys to become rabbis, that would be the best. Well, yeah, well you guys didn't really have what it took, boys, so go fix the nets. 
And then Jesus rolls up and he's like, I'll take you and you. Let's go. And they're like stunned. They can't believe that a rabbi would think they were worthy of following him. Maybe you've heard me say before, ancient rabbis had this saying, a good follower, that's what the word disciple literally means, is covered in dust. And that is the dust of the rabbi's feet. So in other words, wherever the rabbi goes, the disciple or the follower falls right behind. And you do that long enough and you start to bear fruit, as Jesus says, with your life. You see the purpose and meaning behind which God actually created you for something bigger than yourself. So this is actually a calling that involves dignity for these guys. Now, they had no idea what they were getting into. They couldn't fully understand it. And, and quite frankly, there were times along the way where, where they're kind of going, did we make the right decision? Um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not so sure. And then Jesus goes around and he starts healing people and performing all these miracles. And, and even in the midst of that, they're still kind of like, hmm, hmm, right? Because Jesus gets crucified and everybody's like underground. They're like, oh, this could be really bad for us. And then Jesus comes back from the dead. He makes these appearance, appearances to them and, and everybody's like, you did it, game on. That's why you've heard me say before, why is Christianity even a thing? It shouldn't be around. This little fledgling movement that Rome itself tried to just destroy and all of a sudden the flame was lit and, it's like, and it begins to spread and spread and spread. What was it? There's only one plausible reason, and that is Jesus did what he said he was going to do. So at that point, everybody's like, all right, man, we're in it. We're in it. That's why a lot of these guys end up dying the death of a martyr because of what they believe. But in the beginning, they had no idea. They simply trusted. So I would love to tell you that everybody responds like this to Jesus' call, like, oh, Jesus is calling. Okay, great. We're gone. We're, we're, we're trading this life for that life. Great. But that's actually not what happens. Um, we find several examples of this in the Bible. Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 16, there's this guy, he's young, and he's rich, and he's powerful, but he's really concerned about getting into heaven. And the mentality that he adopts is the same mentality that so many people have to this day. I'll show you. Behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, rabbi, what good deed must I do in order to get into heaven. And that's what many people think today. It's like, in the end, all I need to do is work out my good, and my good has to outweigh my bad. As long as my good outweighs my bad, God is duty-bound to throw open the gates of heaven for me because God must be fair. No, I wouldn't say God is fair. What I would say to you is God is just. Just is short for justice. God's justice demands that all the wrongs that you and I do, they have to be paid for, man. God isn't gonna turn a blind eye to all the junk that goes on. One day, all that stuff's gonna be held accountable. That's bad news for you and me. The good news is Jesus comes on the scene and he says, okay, look, it's not about what you do. It's about who you know and who you trust in. Because if you think it's about what you do, then you're gonna to have to be perfect. Because if you could be perfect, there'd be no need for Jesus to come and satisfy the demands of a holy and just God for all the wrongs that you've done. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus had to die. And we're all guilty of it. 
So it's the, really the wrong question, but Jesus is like, okay, I'll tease this out. I'm going to show you its logical conclusion here, but we'll tease it out. You know, it's like Jesus is like, we'll play this game. So verse 17, Jesus said to him, well, why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good, and the implication there, everybody knows that's God, but um, by virtue of shared deity, Jesus would be included in that. So if you would enter life, then keep the commandments. Okay, so the Bible of Jesus' day, that's your Old Testament, right? The commandments, you know, let's just take the Ten Commandments, for example, right? Jesus says, keep every single one of those, okay? Then you'll do good. But if you miss just one, you're going to be disqualified. Verse 18, guy says to him, well, which ones? Jesus said, let me throw six out at you. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbors yourself, okay? Can you do those things? The young man said to him, awesome, <laughs> I'm good. I've kept all these things, you know? And he's kind of like, I am so in. Now, what happens is if he was there for the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does there is he takes these commands and he elevates them. He's like, you have heard Moses say, the lawgiver, he said, you know, it's wrong to commit adultery. And then Jesus says, yeah, but here's the deal. If you've looked on a woman to lust after her, you're the adulterer, because where does adultery start? In the heart. See, the deal is, you just lack the opportunity to get away with it, but it's there. It's there. So really, he hasn't kept these, but Jesus is playing along here, right? Verse 21. Kept them all. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, you need to be perfect. So here's your issue. And it's like Jesus just draws back the bow and he's like, he's gonna let the arrow fly right into the heart of this guy. And he says, here's the deal for you. You need to go and sell all your stuff and give it to the poor and then follow me. Now, it's not about the money. It's about this guy's heart. If it was something else, Jesus would have nailed that. If it was some relationship, right? Jesus would have said, hey, let's talk about this relationship. But for this guy, the thing that captured his heart was his stuff. So when the young man heard this, he goes away and he's, he leaves, right? He doesn't, he doesn't respond like the brothers. This guy leaves and the text says that he's sad. This is the only guy in the Bible that has an encounter with Jesus and he walks away and he's like, man, that is not what I wanted to hear. Nah, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, what's going on? He didn't want to give up the things that the world had to offer and um, his heart was consumed by his things. And Jesus is like, listen, you know, right? You can't serve two people because they're going to be giving you conflicting commands, especially when it comes to money. Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Money actually isn't neutral. I guess you could say in and of itself, it's, it's neither bad nor good. It's what you do with it. But it's never neutral because of what you do with it. So if you love money... You're going to use people. But if you love people, you're going to use your money to love people. It's, money isn't really neutral in that way. This is why it's important to be generous, because it keeps you uh, 
open-handed rather than a closed-fisted possessor. All right, so this is a real challenge for this guy. He doesn't respond to the call. Not everybody responds to the call. So in this context now, in, back in Matthew chapter 19, there's um, his disciples, the guys that have given up everything to follow him, they're listening to this conversation. And, and as they, they hear Jesus say these words, they're starting to think, hey, wait a minute. We've actually given up quite a bit to follow Jesus. Hmm. I wonder what, what it will be like for us. What will it be like for us since we've, we've forsaken all of these things? And this guy named Peter has the, has the boldness to speak up and ask. Verse 27, Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything to follow you, Jesus. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, see, right away he's like, remember, this is not all there is. There is something more to come. Live today in light of eternity. There's a new world. Uh, when the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is honor and authority. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And here's your famous verse, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So this is significant. I've had so many conversations with people who say, I hear what Jesus is saying and I just don't know if it's worth it. And at least they're honest because what they're realizing is if I follow Jesus, what that means is I'm gonna have to turn away from this stuff. So um, I'm gonna have to give up my former lifestyle. What that means is I'm gonna have to bring it under the authority of Jesus' words. And so all the things that I thought were right, maybe those things aren't right. The things I thought were moral, maybe those things are no longer moral. I have to bring it all under conformity to Jesus Christ. And, um, and, that, and that might cost me. That might even cost me some relationships, you know. And the reality is, man, I just feel like I'm too far deep in the game. I just can't give up those things. And what Jesus is saying is it won't be easy, but it will be worth it. So I, I begin to take my faith seriously when I was about 17, 18 years old, I was a senior in high school, and I remember going to my friends at that time, and I said, hey guys, I want you to know that I really, I, you know, I became a Christian, like for real. And I'd say about 90% of them were like, you know, pat me on the head and be like, that's nice, see ya. Simply because I wasn't doing the things that they were doing, and we just didn't have anything in common anymore, and so, you know, they kind of left me behind. These are my, my friends in in, uh, in high school, and, and, um, and, I, and I had quite a few. I went to Horizon High School, graduated in 87, I had quite a few friends. And um, I found myself with, with, um, with less friends. And I remember reading this verse and being like, oh, you give anything up in my name, I'll give it to you a hundredfold. And I'm like, I don't have a hundred more friends. <laughs> Jesus is, what, you know, come on now, you, you, are you lying to me? I don't have a hundred more friends. So I remember talking to this guy, he was actually discipling me at the time, and I came to him and I said, man, I'm struggling right now. You know, I, I, like, I had a bunch of friends and I don't have them anymore. I have fewer friends. And help me understand, and, and he said something super profound. He said, well, you might not have as many friends as you did before, but I'll bet the friends you have now are 100 times better. And I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> totally. Not 100 times, 1,000 times better. Got it. 
some of you, this is why for some of you, many of us, we have closer relationships with our church family than our birth family, right? Um, and Jesus makes the point, you will be rewarded, not only in this life, but in life to come. But see, you will never experience that if you don't stop trying to mend the net you're currently working with, lay it aside, and take those first steps in following Jesus. So there, there's another story, though, um, an alternative to the rich young ruler. There's this guy who also had wealth, not too old, but he wanted something more. And even for those who have things, they realize, in the end, not terribly satisfying. Uh, it, it, things can become idols, and this is why, you know, of the Ten Commandments, think it through, how brilliant is this? What's command number one? No other gods before me. Humans are really good at taking worldly things and elevating them to the place of ultimate importance. And you know what that is? That is idolatry, my friends. If you get the first command right, you're doing pretty good. The rest are probably gonna fall into place for you. So here's a story with this other guy. He actually tells his own story. He's got this own narrative. He writes a biography on the life of Jesus, Matthew. He's a tax collector. More on that in a second. Chapter nine. Uh, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Let me influence you. And the man rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, what we learn from other texts is that after Jesus calls him, he leaves his very lucrative job behind. You'll see that in a second. And he follows Jesus, and then he's like, hey, Jesus, why don't you come to my house, right? And in his house, this, this, his house would be very nice in light of what he did. Come have dinner with me, Jesus. Oh, and I'm gonna invite some of my buddies over. Jesus reclined at the table in his house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came. And they're hanging out with Jesus and his disciples are there. Now, his disciples, these are good, you know, Jewish God-fearing boys. And they've never been in a scene like this before. Never been with this crowd. But they've never been with a man like Jesus. And when the Pharisees saw this, Pharisees are the religious leaders, they thought it went from God to them to everybody else. They were kind of like, we are so righteous. And Jesus is like, yeah, self-righteous. Why does your rabbi eat with tax collectors and sinners? If he's a good teacher, why is he with bad people? So Jesus hears it, and he drops this on him. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says, go educate yourselves. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is really compelling. What we know about the Pharisees is that they tithed on top of their tithe. They would go through their spice rack to make sure that they gave a tenth of their spices. They were into making the sacrifices because they thought they could twist God's arm into throwing open the gates of heaven because they've earned their way to God. But they were so insincere, so hypocritical, so self-righteous. And Jesus says, it ain't about that. It's about mercy. And you won't show mercy to these people. Educate yourselves. From a worldly perspective, Matthew had everything to lose. Here's why. This dude was loaded. 
the Romans were very smart in terms of how they collected taxes. Instead of hiring a bunch of IRS agents to knock on doors, they would put tax collecting out to bid in auction. Yeah, up for bid now is the collection of taxes in the Judean province. The bidding will start at a million shekels. The only guys in the room are super wealthy because the highest bidder would win and then they would pull out a personal check, write it out to the Roman government. Rome would cash it and they would consider it good and then that dude would get a piece of paper that legitimized his role in the collecting of taxes in that province. And so what you would do is you'd knock on the door and you'd be like, hey, tax man is here, I'm collecting taxes. And um, well, how much is it? Well, how much you got? Matthew was in a booth. They had tax booths. A tax collector had the right to set up a booth at the entrance of a city. If you had goods that were bring, being brought in, he'd be like, hey, what, what is that good that you have? Oh, oh, that's taxable. That's taxable. That's taxable. And so they would carry all these heavy taxes, and the idea is that you would collect much more than the check you wrote to Rome. Very lucrative. That's why the only friends of the tax collector was another tax collector. So they're all together. They're all described as sinners. The Pharisees catch wind of it, and they're like, how could you? Now, this is really interesting because as Jesus is, is here, and to share a meal with someone was to say, hey, we're friends, man. That's hospitality. These are my friends. If you're one of the bad guys sitting at the table and you hear another guy say, hey, you hear a religious person say, these are bad people, what you want Jesus to say is, Jesus, tell them, we're not bad. Tell them, right? Stick up for us, right? right? You're on our side, right, Jesus? Jesus doesn't say that. You know what he actually says? He says, yeah, you know what? These guys are sick. <laughs> They're in a really unhealthy place. And the people that are with them, the sinners are kind of like, oh, okay. At least he's eating with us. Huh? But you don't show mercy. So this is the way of Jesus. Jesus was never, never soft on sin, but he was always very gentle with the sinner. You see this with his exchange, this woman who, who is caught in adultery. And, um, well, let's read it. John chapter 8, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them Probably in the, the Solomon's portico, it's just outdoor areas where the religious leaders would sit and teach. Jesus takes up a, a, a position there. Scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman to him, and she'd been caught in, in the act, uh, uh, place her in their midst. Okay, this is embarrassing. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, we could observe here that this is set up from the very beginning, because if she's caught in the act of adultery, she's there. Where is the man? It's just her, though. Now, in the law... Right? Jesus, you read the Old Testament. You know what Moses commanded? Stone such women. That's the penalty. So what do you say? So this is this they said to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they think they're so clever. They're like, okay, cool. This is our chance. He's so merciful and sympathetic to the sinner, so much so that he's going to disregard what the great prophet Moses said about the penalty regarding adultery. What do you say, Jesus? Because if you disagree with Moses, then we know you're a false prophet and we will kill you. This is a hard spot for Jesus to be in, right? No, not at all. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We don't know the details, very mysterious. And as they continued to ask him, Jesus stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you go ahead and take this stone and you chuck it at her. 
The one who's gonna start is the one who has no sin in his life, okay? Go ahead, come forward, take the stone, and you go ahead and throw it at her, right? The one who's, the one who's without sin, right? And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. I have no idea. This is just some savage movement here on his part. Verse nine, when they heard it, though, this is the important thing. When they heard his words, that's what captivated them. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, because at least they had the sense to go. He flipped the script on us. And so it's just Jesus and this woman now. She's scared. She's frightened. She's been used as a pawn. Jesus very gently stood up and said to her, where did they go? It's just you and me here. You see him walk out. There's no one left to condemn you. No, she says. No one. Then she has this title, Lord, which literally means master. Jesus said, then neither do I condemn. I don't condemn you. Go. But before you leave, there's something I want to tell you. Don't sin anymore. You're free to go. I'm not going to condemn you. But what you've been doing is wrong. And I care enough about you to confront you and share that with you. So Jesus was always gentle with a sinner. He was never soft on sin. So we tell people around here that Jesus is our example. Therefore, at Illuminate, we don't condemn people. At the same time, we don't condone everything. Did you catch that? We don't condemn people, but we don't condone everything because we care enough to confront, because we actually believe that Jesus' words give life, and we've experienced this ourselves. If you come to Illuminate, you are going to hear the Bible taught. And when the Bible is taught, there are things you're gonna hear that are gonna rub you like sandpaper. And you know what that is? That's your rough edges being smoothed over. For your good. The Apostle Paul gives this, long, this, this list of, of things that keep people from drawing close to God. And, and in this list, this is one liner, disobedient to parents. <laughs> you know, and you're like, okay, we're, we're all, if something gets all of us, like, like that one isn't my struggle, that is. It's different for all of us. Um, so we have our lifestyles changed our beliefs changed, our worldviews changed. And then the question finally should be asked, why? Why would we wanna listen and be influenced to the voice of Jesus? I'll give you just one, but really good answer. Because Jesus came back from the dead. Period. Jesus came back from the dead. That gives him authority that gives him power, that gives him the ability to bring you back from the dead. If Jesus didn't come back to life, what makes you think he has any ability to extend life after death to you? There is a reason why Christianity is here, why Christianity is a thing. Jesus did what he said he was gonna do. I love this quote. No one is destroyed by obeying Jesus. No one is destroyed by obeying Jesus. And there is no one who has prospered by disobeying him. So, 
Who influences you most? Who is the person you talk to the most? I'll answer that for you. It's you. You are the person you talk to the most. What shapes your thoughts, your attitudes, your beliefs? We probably need to pray. God, these are super profound words from the greatest wisdom giver that the world has ever known. Father, I pray for all those in the room that have yet to respond to your call. None of us is qualified, but in your goodness, you've dignified us and you've called us and it's the calling that makes us qualified. Lord, I pray for those that might be struggling because we've just been listening to all the wrong influences and we're just totally twisted up inside and man, I, you know, myself included, so many of us, we could give witness to that story, but you set us straight. And for that, we're thankful. Continue to do your good work in our hearts, as always, for our good, but ultimately, for your glory. And God's people said, amen.